Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to gather as your people around your word. We know that when we open your word, we're confident that you will speak to us by your spirit through your word, shaping us and molding us more and more, more and more like Jesus. Please do this work in us this morning. Please shape us more and more like Jesus through your holy word, that we might live for you as your saved and forgiven people. Lord, help us to see your work of the gospel going forth in Acts. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow our heat and for your gospel, our desire for your gospel to go forward in our community today. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever made the comment, this guy, he's far beyond God, or she's far beyond God, or those guys, those people, they're far beyond God. You believe that God can save anyone in Jesus, but in reality, you might think, that person, he's one bridge too far. She's too worldly. They've just got no hope of finding Jesus. When I was younger, I met uh, this guy through Chinese school, uh, that Saturday morning Chinese classes that I did uh, every Saturday during the term, uh, during primary and high school. And this guy, I thought he was a pretty worldly kid. He had a Buddhist background, he had heaps of friends. Uh, in uni, uh, we continued to know each other. Our social circles actually collided in uni. Uh, he was still a super nice guy in uni, but I thought he just craved popularity. He always wanted to be the centre of attention. He was also super smart, but I thought he was just very career-minded. He was just seeking worldly success. This guy, I thought, he's beyond God. There's some people who might be interested in God and hearing about Jesus, but this guy, he's, there's no way that he's interested in God. There's no way that God can work in him. But one day, this guy showed up at church. I'm like, you're just here because all your other friends are here, because a girl is here, you just want to be with that crowd. But he kept coming, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And guess what this guy who I thought was too far from God, beyond God, the gospel took hold of him slowly by slowly, step by step, and eventually he gave his life to Jesus. Ten years later, I think that was about 10, 12 years ago, albeit through many ups and downs in life, this guy is still following Jesus today, this guy that I thought was far beyond God. Well, as we continue Paul's journey in Acts, Paul and his missionary band, they arrive at Corinth. Corinth was a huge city. It was located strategically with major ports to its east and west and on the major trade route between Rome and Asia. It had a decorated history, uh, but uh, about first century BC, it was a ruin in the desert. It was, had been captured by the Romans, and it laid ruins in the desert 
until Julius Caesar rebuilt the city, about first century BC. I think Corinth is like the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, far beyond God, prosperous materially, but wicked immorally. It's well known as the home of the temple for the goddess of sex, and it doesn't take too much to see how that leads to immorality. And as Paul enters Corinth, the last stop in his five-city gospel tour, in his second missionary journey, yes, it's a new frontier, a new city for the gospel, but we're supposed to read this and go, Corinth, Las Vegas, an immoral epicenter. Is this one city too far? Were they like my Chinese school friend, popular, worldly, but beyond God? Can the gospel really take hold of this city? Because if any city is beyond God, it's immoral Corinth. Well, we're going to see how the gospel takes hold of sin city of Corinth by seeing four things about gospel work in a place seemingly beyond God's reach. And we're going to begin, obviously, by having a look at verse 1. Have a look at your Bibles. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul, he gets to the city, number five, worldly, prosperous, immoral Corinth. And we see that he doesn't try to win the city alone. He finds Priscilla and Aquila. We assume that they're Jewish background, but they're already believers. And they left Rome because the Emperor Claudius kicked them all out. And these guys, they were tent makers, like Paul. They were leather workers. They worked a wage for their living expenses, meeting different people through their trade, from shepherds in the tents, high-ranking military officials servicing their tents. And it's pretty safe to assume that Priscilla and Aquila, they also joined in with Paul in gospel work. And this little gospel group gets more back up in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Remember, last week's chapter, Paul, he went up to Athens while Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. And now they rejoin Paul in Corinth. They join in with the work supporting Paul and most likely bring some financial gifts from Macedonia, freeing Paul to be fully occupied with the work of sharing Jesus in Corinth. You see, as the gospel takes hold of Corinth, we see straight away, and it's kind of a passing point, that gospel work is a team effort. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, Timothy even financial support from the Macedonians from afar, 
And while Upper Mount Gravatt, or Brisbane, is by no means a city without gospel work happening like Corinth, you see, if we want to join in God's work of seeing the gospel take hold of Brisbane, I think it's going to be a team effort of believers within local churches and believers between local churches in Brisbane. One of the ideas that keeps coming up over the past year in church circles is this idea or this theme or tagline of better together. We're better together. Better together has been the theme of the last two church pastors conference I went to. And clearly there's no issue of copying in church world because the next big church pastors conference I'm going to is the theme of guess what? Better together. And better together means that gospel work is more effective when it's a team effort. Working together with God and seeing the gospel advance. You see, it takes a team effort as we work together with God with the gospel and taking hold of our city. We heard from Thurindu this morning, but Thurindu can't do it alone. Margaret Cook loves having coffees with people, but she can't do it alone. Ken Myhill also loves coffee with people. He loves SU, and he can't do it alone either. We've all got to work together. And even then, Hertford Street Baptist, we can't do it alone, can we? AFES, we, they can't do it alone either. The Presbyterians, they can't do it alone. Faithful, independent churches, they can't do it alone. City Wildfire, they've got a great vision. Reaching the city with workers, they can't do it alone either. Cross-cultural organisations like OMF, CMS, they can't do it alone too. You see, God wants us to work together, to support one another, to rally together around the gospel, cheering for, praying for one another, releasing and challenging one another, being ready when someone or some group needs help or reinforcements. That's why we pray for gospel work. That's why we offer training and opportunities uh, for people to go to conferences so that gospel work can grow. That's why we partner with gospel workers. That's why we even pray for and work with other churches in our local area. You see, winning Upper Mount Gravatt and Brisbane to Jesus, seeing the good news of life in Jesus take hold of our world, you can't do it alone. It's going to be a team effort. And God, remember, 1 Corinthians 12, designed his church as a team. Many members, one body. First thing, gospel work is a team effort. Second thing we see as we keep going, as the gospel takes hold of Corinth, is the gospel takes hold of unlikely people. In verse 4 and 5, if you've got your Bibles, we saw Paul, he does his thing, sharing Jesus as the promised one from God to the Jews first. Verse 6, we see the usual Jewish opposition. 
says when they opposed the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So Paul, he moves on, he declares judgment on the Jewish opposers, and now he moves his focus on the Gentiles, the Greeks in Corinth. He sets up shop out of all places in a house right next to the Jewish synagogue. But what we see happen next should surprise us in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptised. Remember these Jews in Corinth, the last few verses, they reject Paul. They're judged by Paul. They're probably mad at Paul for using the house next door to the synagogue for his ministry. But guess who comes to Jesus? Guess who sees Jesus as the promised one from God? who accepts the good news of life one in Jesus. It's a Jew. But it's not just any Jew. It's this Christmas guy, the leader, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue who just rejected Paul. It's like saying the local Jehovah's Witness leader down the road or the local Catholic church leader or the local Buddhist temple leader Someone you think is so far from coming to Jesus. Maybe one of their members might come to Jesus, but not their leader. But they put this guy, he puts his trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And not only that, his whole household does. And other Corinthians who heard the good news of Jesus do too. They all accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, the giver of new life. Gospel work takes hold of unlikely people. We're not sure what the order is here, but it does sound like Crispus is the first one. He puts his faith in Jesus. Then his family does. And then many other Corinthians do too. In fact, we've seen gospel work take hold of unlikely people all through the book of Acts, haven't we? Dionysius, the Athenian judge at the end of Acts 17, the the Philippian jailer, Acts 16, a Roman governor in in Acts chapter 13, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, Acts 10, And even Paul himself, Acts chapter 9. And here in immoral Corinth, Sin City, Jews, the rejecters of Paul, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue, an unlikely person, someone who most likely opposed and even abused Paul himself. God worked the gospel in his heart and he put his trust in Jesus. Friends, we need to remember that gospel work has no bounds. The good news of Jesus breaks through hard hearts in hard places as unlikely people, people who we often write off, 
They hear the gospel and they respond to the good news of life in Jesus. It happened for Crispus. It actually happened for each of us who are believers here today. We're all unlikely people, aren't we? Even if we grew up in Christian homes, we're sinners far from God. We're all were on that road to death and judgment. But remember, God worked in you. Someone presented the good news of Jesus to you. God opened your heart as you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're all unlikely people. And it can happen to others too. Others in our community, in our city, even those unlikely ones that we think and we say are beyond God's reach. They're not beyond God's reach. My friend from earlier wasn't beyond God. The leaders of the religious groups around us are not beyond God. Even the worldly, sinful, immoral groups around us, they're not beyond God's reach. The gospel takes hold of unlikely people. And I think this should encourage us. It should give us confidence to keep sharing Jesus to those around us in our lives. Well, as we keep going in this chapter in verse 9 and 10, if you have a look, Luke, he records God speaking to Paul in a vision. And just to note, God was working in the early church in a special and unique way. And also in this time of salvation history, the canon of the Bible, what we know as God's word, it wasn't complete yet. So that's why we see lots of visions in the New Testament, and we hear less about them happening today. Verse 9 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. In this vision, we see a command, a promise, and a spiritual reality. God's command to Paul, it's threefold. Don't fear, keep speaking, and don't be afraid. In other words, he's saying keep on going, keep sharing Jesus, even amidst the opposition. Second, God's promise to Paul. God's with him. No one will harm him. It's a special and unique promise for Paul's physical safety in Corinth during this time. And finally, we see the spiritual reality of Corinth revealed. Even amidst the opposition and the immorality, God has his people there people who are his, people whom God has prepared their hearts to hear and receive Jesus. Verse 11 shows us that Paul, he obeyed God's promise. He stayed and shared the gospel for 18 months in Corinth. And verse 12 to 17, it's an interesting story, but it actually shows God fulfilling his promise to Paul in Corinth, protecting Paul protecting him from harm, and ensuring that gospel work continues in this city. Have a listen. 
But when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, the judgment seat, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. You see, Paul, he's dragged to what they call the judgment seat, the tribunal. It's a platform. Uh, it's situated in the middle of a public marketplace. I think uh, it's in the next slide for everyone to see. Uh, where the local governor, the pro council, he makes judgments on cases on this, plat on this platform or the stage. And this is the picture of the actual judgment seat or the bema, uh, which is what it's called in Greek, in the ruins of ancient Corinth. Uh, the white sign in the middle, it says bema, which means tribunal or judgment seat. Uh, if anything, just to show that these places in Acts, they actually exist. And these events really did take place in real places in the world and in history. Verse 14 says, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. You can imagine the beginning of verse 14, Paul, he's trying to open his mouth, he's ready to fight, he's ready to defend himself, but he doesn't have to. In a surprising act, the governor, he doesn't care. He doesn't accept the Jewish complaints, and he kicks the Jews away out from the public square. Verse 17 is a bit debated, I'll read it out says, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. There's a debate here about who actually seized Sosthenes. Uh, was it the Jews fed up with their ruler uh, that uh, they couldn't pin Paul down? Or was it the Gentile, the Corinthians, they were fed up with the Jews making such a fuss all the time and the Gentile Corinthians telling them effectively to shut up. It sounds like it was more likely the Gentile Corinthians seizing Sosthenes and beating him up because the Jews probably would have seized Paul instead because that's who they were after. But whichever way you take it, uh, we see from these verses, we see God keeping his word, God keeping his promises to Paul, keeping him from harm and allowing him to keep, continue sharing Jesus. And the results of this, while not written, is that people came to faith. The church in Corinth was planted. And we know this because of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. You see, God keeps his promises. To Paul, and he keeps them to us too as we share his good news. God is a God of his word. God's promises to Paul were unique and specific. 
But God promises many things in his word to his people, to us, as we live for Jesus and proclaim him in our lives. And we can trust that God is faithful, that God will be true to his word as we keep living for him and sharing his good news. The Bible is filled with God's promises. Just to name a few, Jesus promises that he will indeed build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against us. God is a God of his word. Jesus promises that as we make disciples, he will be with us always. God promises that those who hold fast to Jesus will indeed taste eternal life with Jesus. God promises that his word will not return empty. And God promises that those who turn to him will indeed find life in Jesus. You see, as we seek the gospel taking hold of our suburb and our city, as we work together as the gospel is shared, we can trust that God will keep his word that as we share Jesus, he will work. He will work in mighty and mysterious ways. He'll work for our good and his glory. And this should result in confidence. We should be confident to tell others about Jesus. We ought to be confident and assured that God is working his ways. Well, as we keep going, we get to the end of the passage. Uh, it's great to have Tim back, as he mentioned in the beginning of the service. I've uh, been able to talk to Tim about some of his journeys through Malaysia and Singapore, uh, mostly eating food, I think. Uh, let's be honest. But Tim, if you followed his travels, he was always on the move. Kuala Lumpur, Penang, Malacca. I'm Malaysian and I haven't even been to these cities. Singapore, meet-up after meet-up after meet-up. What was it, 20, 30 people that Tim met up with? He was never at a standstill. Tim just kept on going. Well, as we come to the end of this passage, uh, we have a small and passing point as we see Paul. He keeps moving and moving. He's never at a standstill. Have a read at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencre he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. See, Paul, he stays a bit longer in Corinth. Then he leaves. He goes to Syria, Sencre. He cuts his hair. Uh, it was a vow or tradition for Jews to do this. Uh, one, as a petition for future blessings, but probably for Paul as a sign of thankfulness for his past 
blessings of God's hand on him. Uh, Paul, he does this in thankfulness, and this head shaving was often tradition when heading back to Jerusalem to visit the temple. Paulie then gets to Ephesus, drops Priscilla and Aquila there. He gets to Caesarea. He keeps going and he keeps going. And the phrase, he went up and greeted the church, is most likely referring to Jerusalem. A Jew would always go up to Jerusalem, even if it was going southwards. And the church is referring to the main church, the one in Jerusalem. So Paul, he returns in thankfulness to Jerusalem. But that's not all because Paul keeps going. His journey, he journeys on, he sets sail again. Verse 22 and 23. After getting to Jerusalem, then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Fergia, strengthening all the disciples. You see, this passing point, Paul shows us that gospel work keeps going. It never stops. One trip finishes, another one starts. He moves, he stops, he shares, he encourages, he makes new believers, and then he keeps on going. We might not be like Paul. That might have sounded a bit tiring. We might not have the time to go on full-time missionary trips for 18 months or longer. But I think each of us, we do have the ability to allow gospel work to keep going in our lives, to see our lives as a gospel journey, a missionary trip in a sense. God takes you to work, to the shops, to the men's shed, to the cafe, when you see your extended family, when you come to church, even through seasons, as workers, as parents, as retirees. Does gospel work keep going in your life? Day after day, week after week, year after year, even season after season. Let's be challenged by Paul to see the work of sharing the gospel in every aspect and season of our lives. Well, we've gone through Acts chapter 18 today. It's probably a lesser known and a harder chapter in Acts to follow. But we've seen four things as the gospel takes hold of immoral Corinth. Gospel work is a team effort. Gospel work takes hold of unlikely people. That as gospel work happens, God is a God of his word. He keeps his promises. And that gospel work keeps on going. All of these things, truths that uh, we should both be encouraged by and challenged by this morning. But as we finish off today, I want to spend a few moments digging into what I think are the most profound verses in this passage. God's word to Paul in verses 9 and 10. 
It's, a un- it's God's unique and direct promise to Paul. But I think in those two verses, there's broad truths that remind each of us of our role as we seek the gospel to take hold of our community. Verse 9 and 10 says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. As we finish off, I want to focus on the actions and the spiritual reality. First, the actions are twofold. The negative, don't be afraid. Don't fear man. Be confident in God. Some of us need to hear this action today. I know I do. I fear man. I fear what others will think about me. I fear that they will reject me. I fear about my friendships and connections with others. And God says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. God is with us and for us. And if this is true, who can be against us? And the positive, go on speaking. Don't be silent. And I think some of us need to hear this today. We've lost our voice. We choose not to speak. We defer to others. We even see our voice as deficient. And maybe this morning, if you're just not sure how or what to speak, maybe it's time to do something about it. Read a book to challenge you. Talk to someone to help. Dig into God's word to be confident about it. Go to a conference or a workshop like the Life at Work event next week or our Sunday sessions as the year goes on. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. And finally, let's be reminded of the spiritual reality. It was true for Corinth. And I think it's true for this whole world that needs to hear the good news of life in Jesus. This is the spiritual reality. I have many in this city who are my people. God has many in our world, in the 2.47 million in our city of Brisbane, in the 10,800 people who are in Upper Mount Gravatt who are his people who are his people, who haven't responded to Jesus yet, but people God has prepared to hear and accept his free gift of life and salvation. I think this spiritual reality, it should break our hearts. It should drive us to action to join in God's work in sharing Jesus to those who are lost without him, who are ready to hear and accept the free gift of life in Jesus.
Because friends, only Jesus saves. Only the good news that Jesus died to take away our sins and rose again to win eternal life. Only trusting in Jesus and in his saving work on the cross. Only that can produce eternal life. Only that can produce a right relationship with God, assurance and hope and certainty in a broken and hopeless and uncertain world. You see, it's only trusting in Jesus where we find our true identity, not in gender or sexuality or whatever personality, but as an image bearer of God restored by the saving work of Jesus. Maybe this morning you're actually here, and actually what you need to do is to weigh up the good news of Jesus. Maybe God is preparing your heart to grapple with the claims of Jesus today. Maybe for most of us this morning, you know already, you know that only Jesus saves Well, let's hear God's word this morning. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. God has many in our world who are his people, waiting, itching to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus. So as we finish off this morning, we've seen God's good news take hold of sinful, immoral Corinth. And today, God is working that same gospel in taking hold of our city, our suburb, and our world. We need God's help to do this. So let's pray and ask him to work in us so that the gospel will take hold of our city. Let's pray. Father God, your gospel is the good news that moves people from death to life as people believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Father, we pray for your gospel to take hold of each of us and for your gospel to take hold of our suburb and our city and our world. Father God, forgive us for the times when we ignore your gospel call, when we ignore your commands, your urge to go out and proclaim Jesus to the world. And Father, help us as your people to work together to keep sharing Jesus, knowing that your gospel breaks through hard hearts and as you work your kingdom purposes in this world. Father God, we'd love to see your gospel take hold of our community. So please do a good work by your Holy Spirit. Please be glad to use us as your instruments in your work of making Jesus known. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty and saving name. Amen.